Rise and Shine History Buffs, it's time for another episode of Monday Morning General. I'm Brendan, hanging out with Bjorn, and again, we have Sam DeCosmo joining us. Heyo! Yeah, we're glad to have you here. This is episode two of Passion Dale, uh, or the Third Battle of Eve. Uh So Bjorn, what, what happened? What did we talk about last time? Sure, yeah. So last episode, we discussed kind of a prelude to the battle. The uh, the two battles that had occurred previous to this one, remember the first Battle of Ypres, the second Battle of Ypres, the very creatively named. Uh, we discussed the main authors of the battle. You have British General Sir Douglas Haig, uh, as well as the German First Quartermaster General Erich Ludendorff. And we talked about his idea of uh, defense in depth strategy. So in this episode, we're going to cover a play-by-play of the battle. Uh, remember, Brendan, this battle took place over months. And as such, we don't have a lot of time in this episode to cover the every single day action. Uh, I know how much you like to talk, Brendan, but we're going to try and focus on key events that occurred during the three months, one week, three days that were the Battle of Passchendaele. Uh, but before we get into it, let's give the listeners a really quick look at the battlefield. That's- I think it's like seven mini battles that happened as a part of this. Yeah, there was a lot. It's there crazy. was a lot. And that th- this is really the first time we see that most of the time, like Waterloo happened in a day. Right. Yeah. This is the first war. And w- I mean, Passchendaele is not the first battle, but World War One is really the first right. war where battles take months now. Right. It's kind of wild. Yeah. Before we get started, I do want to quickly acknowledge the source that I pulled all of my information from, uh, Passchendaele, The Lost Victory of World War One by Nick Lloyd. It's a really good read. Uh, it gets right to the point, and he's got a lot of good opinions about Douglas Haig in there. Uh, and then I wanted to, to start us off with a quick excerpt from Basil Little Hart's book, uh, The Real War. And he right now is going to be quoting the words of Sir Lancelot Kiggle, a senior staff officer at British GHQ, uh, as he visited uh, the Passchendaele battle. And the quote goes, Growing increasingly uneasy as the car approached the swamp-like edges of the battle area, he eventually burst into tears, crying, Good God, did we really send men to fight in that? To which his companion replied that the ground was far worse ahead. If the exclamation was a credit to his heart, it revealed on what a foundation of delusion and inexcusable ignorance his indomitable offensiveness had been based. So what he said, the generals didn't even know what the conditions They didn't even know like. what the ground like, or at least the staff officer. Yeah. They didn't do their terrain analysis. They did not. So should or, we talk about the terrain analysis quick? Yeah, absolutely. Let's dive yeah. right in. All right. Let's just dive so, right in. Let's just dive right <laughs> in. All right. Uh, so quick, area of operations. So the battle line ran, and the battle line is like the basically the trench line where the Germans and the British faced off. So the battle line ran north and south bulging on the east side of Ypres. The British were on the west and the Germans were on the east. From that line, if you hopped in a car and drove to Passchendaele, uh, it would only take you about 11 minutes to drive the 10 kilometers from the British front line at the start of the battle to the their last objective at Passchendaele. And then from north to south, the line ran about 40 kilometers or about 25 miles. So an 11-minute drive yeah. is what is what 10, 10 kilometers? That's yeah, as far as they advanced in three and a half months. Yeah. And spoiler alert, you got 10 kilometers cost nearly 800,000 lives. Was it worth it? Let's Killed find out. Captured. <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's talk about, let's do some Ocoke. Let's do some train analysis here. So uh, the Ypres salient where the battle took place is a landscape of low hills and dips slowly flattening out into the featureless plain as one goes northwards from Passchendaele. And the terrain, while subtle, played an immense role in the unfolding action. So let's talk about Admiral's approach. So those approaches towards Ypres were as varied as they were treacherous. The main road from Paparinga to Vlamerting, uh, a defile easily observed from the ridge, was one of the few paved options. The unpaved routes were often dotted with villages and houses, and the lowland west of the ridge was a mix of meadows and fields intersected by streams and a network of drainage ditches draining into those 
little pieces of water are going to be very important as we go into the battle narrative. Uh, the battlefield was riddled with obstacles. So beyond the natural challenges of the muddy valley of the River Duvra and the Plogus Street Wood, the land was scarred by artillery bombardments. The woods, once dense with undergrowth, were reduced to tree stumps and barbed wire. The ground cratered with shell holes. Fields between the woods, devoid of cover, stretched 800 to 1,000 yards wide. So like think like large open fields with like copses of woods that were, um, you know, not very large, and then large opens the field. And then cover and concealment was super hard to come by. Shattered tree trunks and barbed wire uh, gave minimal protection. Uh, there are some wooded areas like Polygon Wood, Battlewood, Shrewsbury Forest, and Sanctuary Wood. Uh, they had some size to give some cover, but not really much. Uh, observation and fields of fire, uh, really good for the army that held the higher ground, especially the Germans uh, on the Passchendaele Ridge. The main ridge uh, had spurs that were sloping eastward and westward. They were sloping westward off of the ridge. Uh, they provided a good vantage point for ground observation, enfilade fire, and converging artillery bombardments. Movements of reinforcements, supplies, and storage would also be easily screened. Observation from the air when clear was exceptionally good here, but those nice days for air reconnaissance were few and far between. And then there are some key terrain features too, uh, mostly on the hills overlooking Ypres. So there was Kemmel Hill to the southwest and the low line of hills running from with Shete and Hill 60 in the east. Uh, they provided elevation advantage crucial to the battle. Um, with Shete stood about 150 feet above uh, the plain around Ypres, uh, and then further east, Hoog and Passchendaele offered an elevated position of about 100 feet and 70 feet, respectively there. Not a lot of, like, super important key terrain. You know, basically just, like, who is commanding the high ground here It was the name of the game. And I think the British might have put too much emphasis on trying to achieve some of that high ground based on what they're... And then quick, just run through... Or Sam Bjorn, any any comments on that train analysis? No, that's a good train analysis for the battle and what 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 that means, the so what for the battle. But I think on a macro level, if you kind of look at where Ypres is, uh, you, you got to remember it. Germany didn't uh, invade the Netherlands. Um, I'm not sure what, how much involvement the Netherlands had in World War One. I. I don't think it was much. Um, and so, really, when you're when you're looking at Ypres and Belgium, you're looking at uh, the ports. Right. right. And so and the, the, the main one, particularly that Antwerp is what where the German U-boats were sailing out of. Exactly. So Ypres is super important to the allies to keep the the German U-boats up in the having to having to dock in Germany. Um, so that's it's super important. Sure. So I think that uh, when we're talking about this, we need to realize that when you're talking about woods, when you're talking about cities and houses and, and different cover and concealment throughout the entirety of this battlefield, you're you're in no man's land. You've got you've got a moon cratered landscape in between yourself and your opponent. And even if you get past that, it's a hundred meters to your enemy's first line of defenses. Well, guess what? If you take that, there's another one behind it, and there's another one behind that, and there's mm -hmm. another one behind that. So as the listeners are are kind of reviewing this battle over the days of and months that this battle is, realize that after they break through one of those lines or capture one of those strong points, there's another one behind it. The defense in depth strategy is a massive undertaking if you're attempting to break through. So uh, covering concealment, yeah, you're going to have, there's maybe a wall from a house that's been shelled to smithereens that you can hide behind. But remember, it's get across no man's land as quick as you can, take advantage of your gains, hold what you've gained, and then move forward again. That's the idea. We talked about defense in depth last time too, and how cool it was. We, you, people need to understand, like this defense in depth goes like 15 miles. It is. It is basically a, the German front line all the way to Passchendaele. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it, it's an incredible, it's an incredible feat of, of defensive strategy. It's that real German engineer. <laughs>
All right. Uh, available forces here. I don't have like the official. I could not find the official numbers, like how many people actually participate in this battle. Uh, but on the Allied side, we have the British Expeditionary Forces commanded by Field Marshal Sir Doug's Hag. Uh, underneath him, he had three armies that he commanded. Uh, the first was in the north, uh, had six divisions under General Anthony. Uh, the fifth in the middle, right outside of Ypres, uh, 18 divisions under General Goff. And then second in the south, 12 divisions under General Plumer. And then on the central power side, we have the German Fourth Army with three Gruppen, commanded by Crown Prince Ruprecht. Uh, in the north was Group Dixmude with four front divisions and two Eingrief divisions. Uh, Eingrief divisions are their, basically their counterattack infantry that sit behind the front. The next one in the middle was Group, group Ypres with three front and two Eingrief divisions. And then in the south, we have Group we shot they with three front and three iron green. So that's just kind of like how what we're fighting here. Tons of real, real dumb question for Bjorn here. But Ruprecht is the crown prince. Does that mean he's the heir to the Kaiser? I think he's one of the one of the children of the Kaiser. But if you're the crown prince, you're basically the heir apparent. You're the next in line. You're the next in line for the pickle halba. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. Thank All you. Right. But so he's the crown prince of Bavaria. Oh, so, Bavaria, that, so remember, at this point in time, Germany is a, a huge coalition of kingdoms. There's a couple individuals who are who are kings and queens still, even though they all fall under Kaiser Wilhelm, the king of Prussia. So he's the Kaiser in charge of Germany. He's the king of Prussia. And this guy is the crown prince of Bavaria. Yeah. So his, uh, you know, Ludwig III is actually his predecessor. So I think so. All I right. love a podcast. This is a military history podcast. I get it. But a podcast on the formation of Germany. Super. Oh, it's crazy how that happened. All right, Brennan. Should we get into this battle narrative Let's here? Let's get into the battle. All right. So here's the deal. Let's just dive right in. Dive straight into it. Okay. So the British going into this it's battle. Like the Olympics gotta, in here. All right. Can I Go talk ahead, now, guys? <laughs> <laughs> all right. So the British going into this battle, they've got a couple of objectives. And on the first day, they wanted to make it through three different objectives. They wanted to make it to the Wilhelmstelg which is the third line of defense. It's a few thousand meters forward. So in one day, their hope is to make it a couple thousand meters ahead. So the front line, the secondary line into the third line, the Wilhelmstalling, which is the third line of defense. That's what they wanted to grab on the first day. All right. So initially, uh, that third line had been reserved for the second day of the offensive, but they decided, hey, let's be ambitious. We're going to make that happen on the first day, all three objectives. Then we want to have a fourth objective uh, where we we capture the first three objectives, we bring forward fresh troops, and then we're going to push forward even further on that first day of battle. That was their hope, okay? Now, there are places um, within the German defense where they had hoped that they were going to be able to make that occur. The, attacks, the attack was not planned as a breakthrough operation. They thought that they could make it through the fourth German defensive position, which was about 10,000 yards or about 10 kilometers behind the front line, that was not an objective on the first day of battle, but they were planning on taking that. All right. So this is they're at least reasonable here. These objectives are not unreasonable. They think, hey, we've played this game a couple times before. We've been doing this for two and a half years at this point, almost three years by the end of this. We've been well, yeah, on the four, uh, the 4th of August, they've been doing this for three full years, 1914 to 1917. So they know what they're doing, and they realize that they need to have reasonable objectives that can be that can be captured. Okay, but I, I I'm going to counter that because I know in the back of Douglas Haig's mind is that dude was clamoring for a breakthrough. That dude wanted to see horse soldiers running through the German line and yeah. taking Antwerp, right? Like, and he had sold this whole campaign 
to the Supreme Command of Britain, you know, Prime Minister Lloyd George. And he said, hey, George, I am going to take Antwerp. We're going to get rid of these damn U-boats. We're going to do the thing. So Haig, like, and and also at the Somme, Haig, like, wanted the breakthrough so bad. So I think some of his staff kind of quelled a little bit of that. But Douglas Haig, the field marshal, was desperate for a breakthrough. Well, well he was also coming on the heels of the Neville offensive where the Allies, you know, wanted something. They wanted some bang for their buck, and they wanted yeah. it back. You're right. Well, and this is where this is where there's some realism here because Douglas Haig is going to place some stress on the concept that British troops need to take advantage of opportunities to take ground that's left temporarily undefended. So regularly during these battles, you would make a massive bombardment of a position, and then the only option for the enemy is to vacate that position. Yeah. Well, what happens sure. if you don't take advantage of that the the vacate yeah. the vacating of that line or what do you call that the vacation of that line? You, right. If you don't take That's advantage right. of it, like a nice vacation. There you go. They're coming straight back in. And that was something that they had identified previously. And they said, for this battle, we are going to have our troops take advantage of that before they're reoccupied by the opponents. All right. So 3.50 a.m. on the 31st. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I have so many comments here before we get to Pilkham Ridge, like, okay. like the lead up to the battle, which I think is really important. Okay. Um, okay. So the first thing, on July 12th, the British are just sitting in their lines and all of a sudden, this gas comes rolling across into the British line. Their symptoms started with a sneeze, gradually increasing to nose and throat irritation. Later on, in some instances, as much as six or eight hours after exposure to the gas, intense and very painful irritation and inflammation of the eyes, accompanied by a free discharge of mucus from the nostrils and occasional fits of vomit. When 5th Army's chemical advisor, Captain G.W. Monnier Williams, investigated the scene, he found shell fragments from German 77-millimeter field guns painted with unusual green and yellow crosses. The strong smell of the gas led to the name mustard. So July 12th is when the Germans first used mustard gas on the Allied line uh, in preparation. Because I think, you know, the Germans have seen a lot of this buildup of the British uh, coming up to the lines. And so we're going to start disrupting that movement and we're going to start hitting them. Well, that mustard gas is no joke. If you take a look, uh, there's actually a picture of a regular leather glove and then one that has been subjected to mustard gas exposure. And the one that's been subjected is a shriveled up piece of garbage compared to this Jeez. regular leather glove. So imagine, I mean, leather, that's that's cowhide, that's skin. Right. Uh, think of what that's going to do to your lungs. So this mustard gas came in a projectile form or was this yeah. like we talked so about like, last time? So last battle or the last time we talked about, I think, second Ypres, right? Bjorn, when they used chlorine gas and they used it from barrels. Right. Mm-hmm. So they like just open a barrel, started a, a, a reaction and have the gas come out. Now the Germans are firing artillery with gas rounds. Um, and they might have been doing that with chlorine gas. But you're saying this is the first time they were using mustard gas? First time with mustard gas. So that happened. And then in the air above the, the British had 800 aircraft. The Germans had six. Uh, the Royal Flying Corps from the British, their main task was to make sure that as few enemy aircraft as possible were allowed to fly over the British front lines. So Haig authorized aggressive offensive patrols right across the salient, pushing back any enemy fighters and providing space for his other aircraft to complete their reconnaissance duties unimpeded. At the same time, specially selected squadrons were tasked with bombing enemy targets, the aerodromes at headquarters, railway junctions and roads, and then trenches and dugouts. The German Air Service had orders to shoot down observation balloons and to prevent British planes from entering the attack zone. By the end of July, the 4th Army increased the amount of squadrons from 30, 13 to 80. So the Germans like drastically increased the amount of airplanes that they're flying because of the pressure that the British are putting on here. And one other note, uh, the Red Baron was flying over 30 at this time. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, and I think that's one of the things that makes this so difficult. In order to launch an offensive, you have to have the logistic capabilities built up. Right. You have to have the supplies. You have to have the manpower. But in order to get that 
up to the front lines without your opponent knowing about it, you need to do everything you can to keep that from occurring. Right. So you bring in tons of planes and your planes right. are making sure that there's no enemy reconnaissance, which then tips off your enemy that says, wait a second, something's happening something's here. Happening. Yeah. So we need right. to do something. It's in, it's nearly impossible at this point, at this juncture, for them to have the necessary reconnaissance, the necessary logistical capability and the necessary manpower in line without having your enemy tipped mm-hmm. off. So the other important piece here, and one thing that we talk about in modern uh, army doctrine is shaping, right? Like we want to shape the battlefield to a level that's acceptable for us to send ground maneuver in. And the British really try to do that here. I don't know if they're super successful at and this by, part And of by battle. shaping, you mean pummeling it with artillery so right. that it's, yep. people are yep. softer and they're not quite so ready like for in this instance like they're trying to reduce the amount of obstacles that are on the battlefield right so like there's a lot of barbed wire there's the trenches there's pillboxes there's fortified machine gun positions right so the british are trying to eliminate that and at the same time target uh the enemy soldiers right so you know, keeping the germans out of the trenches and basically like reducing the amount of uh obstacles that are there for the british ground maneuver which is so what i what i really like about this battle is that the uh british took some lessons learned from the psalm and applied them here so yeah. at the psalm they were not using high explosive shells for their initial bombardment i think they were just using shrapnel rounds mm-hmm. um and it didn't do anything to reduce obstacles so the openings in the in the german in the german lines were very few and far between sure and a lot of brits died as a result of that here they were using those high explosive mm-hmm. rounds, so they're, uh, it, it enabled their maneuver, their ground maneuver, much uh, with much greater effect. The British started their preliminary bombardment to shape the deep German defensive line starting on 16 July and ending with the offensive starting on 31 July. So the British had 3,000 guns, and they in that two-week time frame, they used 4.2 million shells Four to shape the German line. Million 4.2 million shells. shells. 4.2 this was so. the largest and the last major bombardment of the war. Uh, the Germans had about a thousand guns and the German guns had ringed the salient, right? So they were facing west and they would in return, like doing counter battery fire almost 1.5 million. Uh, so here, here's what I don't like about, like, I understand that you want to shape the battlefield and you're coming off of your PTSD from the Somme and everything. But when you look at characteristics of the offense here and the British are on the offense, you mm-hmm. have surprise, concentration, tempo, and audacity. I don't think sending 4.2 million rounds along a 10 mile line is audacious. I don't think that counts. I don't think that you can just mm. throw artillery at the problem and have that go away, you yeah. know? And if we were, you could, one could say, Hey, but we're concentrating. No, you're, you're, fo- you're, you're shelling the whole line, right. right? If you were shelling one specific spot and then would you even need 4.2 million rounds to do that? Probably not. So I think that everyone is just kind of, they're, they're, they're trying to figure out how to, how, how to use these modern weapons in the yeah, modern we'll t- world. We'll talk about Sam. I think you're right. Like they failed in some of these characteristics of the offense and these first initial battles of third Ypres for the British were not successful because of that reason. I think. Yeah. Well, and yeah. it's also it's also important to realize that there's a difference in trench construction between the Allies and the Central Powers during this portion of the of the war. The Germans had a had a attitude that we've conquered this land, we are going to hold this land, and so they built their trenches to withstand these bombardments. The British, on the other hand, they had an idea that. We, tomorrow we want to be in the German trenches. So why yeah. would we invest as much time and, and manpower in yeah, building all these things are in our backyard and now they're yeah. disrupting our supply lines. Exactly. And so one of the best assets that the Germans had 
was their trench construction. So regularly you would hear about these bombardments, creeping barrages and mm-hmm. massive, massive pounding of the enemy positions. And then as soon as the, as soon as the guns go quiet, all of a sudden, someone rips off a machine gun belt just to show you, hey, we're still here. You did nothing. Mm-hmm. So the Germans called this the Tramofuhr or, or, or drum fire in English. So the Germans referred to this bombardment and how the British attacked them with artillery at uh, Ypres as drum fire. Uh, a German soldier said this at the bombardment. The situation is melancholy. Our company has suffered heavy losses during the one day we've at the present moment. We are in the support trench a few hundred meters behind the front line. The English shell the entire area incessantly with the heaviest guns, and the ground is one mass of shell holes, some of them large enough to build houses. Death lies in wait for us like a fox for its prey. What was the uh, time period in which they dropped these 4.2 million shells? Like how many, over how many days? July Two 16 weeks? to July 31. Man, you'd almost go out of your mind. So the, the Brit, yeah, you would. And like, there's a lot of accounts in this book that talk about. Um, so the, the round That's 5,000 shells an hour. Yeah. 5,000 shells an hour. Um, the, so despite all of that, the German defensive positions and pillboxes remained largely intact. The barbed wire was destroyed. The trenches were destroyed, but any fortified position was largely there. So like any fortified machine gun positions or those pillboxes, they're all pretty much still there on the front line. Well, and Brendan, here's a question. I, you know, I've never been to like a moon cratered landscape, but if you've got a bunch of barbed wire strung out or instead you Mm -hmm. have a bunch of explosive explosion craters, that's still an obstacle too, right? You got all yeah. these monstrous craters. And it's going to turn into a major obstacle when we start getting a, a little precipitate. <laughs> um, okay, so another... Don't worry, hey, check the forecast. It looked fine. Uh, on July 28th, the Germans used 19 ammunition tra- During the Battle of Somme the previous year, they never broke eight. Holy smokes. <laughs> like wow. the, the volume of supply for this battle is mind-blowing. Well, and the, the industrial capability... Yeah. Can you imagine a modern country being no. able to to withstand or no. to supply four no. million shells in two weeks? That's crazy. Well, and then it, remember, it's, it's crazy that it's, it's crazy that we're you know almost three years into the war and they're able to to keep up. You know, at the beginning of the war, I think mm-hmm. there was a stat that the Russians were uh, being were able to produce. I, I, these numbers are probably wrong, but twenty thousand shells uh, a day, but they were using like. 40,000 shells an hour or something. Something mm-hmm. those, those, those stats are probably off, but the, the ratio is way off. And so mm-hmm. like the, the fact that they had to ramp up their production, not just Russia, but everyone, um, and the fact that they could sustain this three years into the war is incredible. So as we move into the start of this battle on 31 July, uh, rain started on 29 July. And so this all this rain, plus the constant barraging, uh, left no man's land in the area, in the vicinity of the German trenches, just a muddy mess. Uh, which it was terrible for infantry foot maneuver. It was terrible for tank maneuver. Um, and it was like, yeah, you, they could barely fight across this. And Douglas Haig didn't seem to give a crap. About it. So Bjorn, let's hit it. Let's let's actually talk about this battle now. So 31 July, Pilcombs Ridge. All right. So the British are going to kick off their attack 3.50 a.m. on the 31st of July. It's what's known as the Battle of Pickham Ridge. Uh, there was low cloud cover because of the precipitation meaning that it's going to be dark uh, when the British are going to unleash their their offensive. Now, it's interesting that throughout this major battle, there are tons of little battles. We're going to go through them. We're going to try and do it quickly because it's very similar the entire time. It's going to be, oh, the British attack, they gain a little ground. The Germans counterattack, they might gain a little ground back. The British gain it again and again and again. We're going to hear this over and over. But on the first day, 
the initial attack is going to make a little bit of success. They're actually going to make it to their black line objective, which was about 3,000 yards in front of them, which is a serious gain for a first day of an offensive. So it seems like the British were off to a really good start. They made it by to about 4,000 yards by the end of the day. When, which is their third position, right? That's that we the, talked that's, about. That's the third. That's the third yeah. objective line. Um, they're deep. They're they're deep in where in the no man's land area. They're deep in the German defenses here. Where around noon, so you've had about twelve hours. Noon, the Germans unleash their defense in depth counterattack, utilizing the cover from every artillery piece and aircraft yeah. that they had in range. So remember, this is a salient, and so the the Germans actually have the the advantage because they're able to pinch these off. Mm -hmm. And so every time the British are able to gain some ground, they're protruding, they're bulging into the German defensive line. And then the Germans now have three different sides in which they can uh, use to their advantage. Yep. So they just turn their guns to the sides and they, they bombard in, they give yep. everything they've got. And guess what? They push the British back to their to not the original lines, but For the first line back to that first line. Yeah. And so that was the German Eingrief divisions that were the ones that were counterattacking. So, yeah, by so noon, I, those divisions were in in motion and, and counterattacking. So for for this war, though, for World War One, advancing 4000 yards, even though you have to retrograde at some point, that is that is an incredible feat. Is this where they they first had uh, introduced the idea of a creeping barrage, or was that later in Passion Day? So they're going to use creeping barrages as yeah. one of their one of their artillery tactics. They did not use it effectively, right? And right. There's there, but there are instances we're going to talk about them. Smoke screens are used uh, mm -hmm. effectively in order to gain some ground. Uh, there are a lot of different artillery practices. One that, that's really interesting, really great name, the Hurricane Barrage. Uh, we're going to talk about those later, but. Uh, so the 31st of July, we 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 kick off the attack. Rain is going to delay this offensive. Another yeah, rain attack. starts about 1600 on the 31st. And, and then guess what? It stops everything. It doesn't stop. So, so I, have a, it, I have a good quote here uh, from uh, the German site. So the German group Ypres report said this. The first day of major combat was over. Its end result was this. The major offensive that had been prepared with the utmost care for months and equipped with all available resources and which was carried out with unprecedented force with double superiority in infantry and triple superiority in artillery had failed utterly. So, but like, there it is. Like, the Germans, like, thought the, the <laughs> British just failed incredibly here uh, on at Pilkham's. Well, Brendan, they're going to try again. They and will. then they're going to try again. So... On August 10th, they're going to well, attempt to one capture. One thing to note, though, between the 1st of August and the 10th of August, it rained every day. Every it single was, day. Every single day it rained. And it was like unprecedented. It was like biblical amounts of rain. And this was after, you know, uh, the British intelligence officers were like, yeah, it'd be pretty good. It looks like it's going to be a dry year. Yeah, I was actually <laughs> looking at the I was looking at the weather reports. They said it was the wettest it had been in 30 years. Yeah. So it was the wettest August in 30 yeah. years. Uh, the operating areas were just a muddy soup. Uh, artillery couldn't be moved. Tanks couldn't be recovered, and the men walked on boards laid out like a spider. I'll tell you what, I've seen a tank sink, get sunk all the way down to the turret in the mud, and I'm not going to say who was driving the tank because you might be on the podcast right now. Well, I'll tell me? you what, I'm going to the podcast. I'm going to invite you guys to. I'm going to invite you guys down south to one of my fields in April after a really good rainstorm, oh, and like have you time. try and muck your way across it. Yeah, let's do that. Let's pencil it'll it in be, for next year. It'll be all so much fun. All right. So finally, the 10th of August, right? So it's rained for 10 days here. 
The British then launch their attack again. They're attempting to consolidate and capture the rest of their black line, which is that second offense or the second objective. Mm-hmm. Um, the infantry advance succeeds. German counter artillery fire, counter attacks with infantry. They attack behind a smoke screen, recapture almost everything that had been captured during that attack. So the British go forward one step, they go back one step. German leadership's going to note that after the 14 days in the line that they had spent, um, they're going to sustain less than about half of the casualties than they had sustained on the Somme in 1916. And they're going to make a note that the German troop morale is much higher than it had been uh, in the year prior. So they're looking at this as a really huge, big deal for them. They're like, hey, good news, guys. This this offensive has been going on for days now. Mm-hmm. We've sustained half the casualties than we normally do in a battle this size. And our troops are super stoked. They're way higher morale than what they had last year. So Bjorn, I want to put good. a pin on that uh, for like a couple of minutes from now, because uh, I have some comments on how Haig was thinking about the German morale. Uh, but I'll <laughs> save that for a couple. But listeners, remember what Bjorn just said, that the Germans were actually in a high morale from German headquarters. All right. So then we have numerous other little engagements that take place over uh, over the entirety of the battle. Nearly uh, every one of them is the same story. The Battle of Hill 70, Canadian Corps attacks a small German salient. This was actually a success, though. The Canadians fought well here. Oh, yeah. They inflicted heavy damage. They inflicted heavy damage on the four German divisions. Germans suffered 20,000 casualties to the Canadians, 9,000. Right. It was a good day for the Canadians. So it's a Canadian Corps versus four divisions. What's the difference in size between them? It's about the same size. What is is the exchange rate between Canadian Corps and German divisions? Yeah. So there was no real, like, here's a standard order of battle. Like, these are, they're all different. So I I think, like, the one corps to the four divisions is pretty close. So super success, though. Yeah. All right. Then on uh, August 16, 17, and 18, you have the Battle of Langemark, which is a small little village outside of Ypres. the British the ground is not dried by this point. The ground is still incredibly no, the So it rained. The, I think it was only dry three days out of in that August, but it was still overcast. And so there was no evaporation. There was no yep. sun. So even when it wasn't raining, it was wet and the water wasn't going anywhere. So, yeah, so no tanks. It's only Yeah. So units, the, the British are going to see initial success. Their infantry is going to advance. Guess what? Forward, the forward units were going to be isolated by our German artillery. They're going to be forced back to the starting line again because of German counterattacks. They did have one minor gain, though. They were able to advance and hold the village of Langemark. Mm. So then here's good news, everyone. On August 19th, there were two oh, days wait, of I got, another, I got some more points here, Beard. You're jumping too fast. Uh, on the 16th at the Battle of Langemark, between both armies, 800,000 artillery rounds were shot, more than was used during the entire Franco-Prussian War. Oh, wow, in a three-day period. Yeah. And the, you got to think well, with every single day, artillery shell. Speed. That's with every single artillery shell. That's just loosening up the mud even more. Yeah, it's loose. It's, it's real loose. Uh, okay, so here, so on 18 August, uh, Egg was like trying to work out some assessments. Like, what the hell do we do? Nothing is working, right? Like, we've barely taken any ground. We fired all this artillery. We lost all these men. Nothing's working. And Egg was basically like trying to sell this thing to uh, the prime minister and to his staff. And he was basically just forcing assessments on the enemy. Uh, so the mm-hmm. British chief uh, of intelligence, Chardieri, however you say that, uh, he issued a report assessing the Germans uh, to keep up this level of fighting for 12 months. Haig, instead, not listening to his intelligence officer, reported to the war office that time was fast approaching when Germany will be unable to maintain her armies at the present numerical strength. Haig relied almost entirely on prisoner of war interrogations as his 
which are not the most reliable method, right? Like these Germans just got captured and they're probably not in the best mood. And so they're saying, yeah, things are not good. And so Haig took that to be the ground truth. He listened to all these POWs instead of like the actual report. And that's what he reported to to hire. And uh, it doesn't work out for him. Bad assessment. So we get two days of dry weather. On August 19th, the British 18th Corps is going to conduct a novel infantry, tank, aircraft, and artillery operation against German strong points which is going to result in successful territory capturing and similar small gains are going to be made on the 22nd. Those advances are halted. And guess what? Poor weather again causes further offensives to be postponed. Well, you know what? We but, really needed that rain. Yeah. Yeah. We had another combined attack uh, on the 27th, but the tanks bogged down in the mud. And then guess what? Heg's finally going to He's going to call a timeout. He's going to say, hey. Tanks, tanks have never broken down in the history of tanks. Oh, never yeah. Ever they're never super reliable things. Very resilient vehicles, tanks are. <laughs> and they're good in the mud. But I, I think the key word here, Bjorn, is novel. That means that this is the first time infantry tanks, aircraft, and artillery are used in simultaneously, com- si- simultaneously <laughs> in mutual support of each other's maneuver. Is that right? That's what we call combined arms. It's it's the first time in this battle. Now, there were a couple other instances uh, in the past where this had been attempted. Uh, but one of the biggest problems in history is always that communication. How do you tie everything together? Because the artillery is not in the same spot sure. as your tanks. And the infantry and the tanks aren't always together. And bringing up reinforcements, getting the airplanes in the air, all having them hit the same point at the same time, that's difficult. And so throughout all of history, that has been like the number one yeah. bane to the existence of combined mm-hmm. arms. Yeah. And was radio a thing yet? Or were they no. still relying on telephone wire? So radios were a thing, but they were as oh. big as a modern day car. Oh, oh, that is great. Okay. So Bjorn, I had the date when, when, uh, Hey called the timeout as a fifth, but either way he did. He was like, this, this ain't working. And, uh, general Goff, you are not cutting it. You and the fifth army are not cutting it here. Um, he had asked the fifth army to advance on the Guvelt plateau and it didn't happen. So Haig taps in second army led by Sir Herbert Plumer and Plumer accepted this task on one condition. He needed three to prepare. He's like, I got, I got to get ready for this battle. I'm not going to do the same thing that Goff just. So as early as 12 August, Plumer had written a set of tactical notes recommending progressively shorter advances or bounds, employing fresh troops for each one with regular halts to ensure areas were thoroughly cleared and troops ready for the next day. Plumer seemed to have grasped the essence of German defense tactics. The farther we penetrate his line, the stronger and more organized we find him. The farther we penetrate his line, the weaker and more disorganized we are liable to become. Therefore, Plumer recommended that proportionally more troops be allotted to the furthest objectives so that they would be strong enough to repulse the inevitable enemy counters. Moreover, Moreover, any advance could only be successful if the artillery preparation and the creeping barrage were deeper and more thorough than ever, with the heavier batteries focused on locating and destroying enemy guns. This is the real road to the infantry success, and the enemy is well aware of it. So Plumer creates this plan to seize the 4,000 yards in front of him uh, and take it in phases. So each phase would take six days with the aim of capturing 1,000 yards. I have more. I can go into a lot more detail here on his operation order if anyone's interested. Well, that's the that's the bite and hold tactic. Basically, yeah. So the, the concept of it is we're going to grab it, we're going to hold it, and then we're going to grab some more. And in order to do that, he's going he's gonna to utilize, uh, like you said, Brendan, new tactics, new emphasis, use of heavy and medium artillery to destroy German concrete pillboxes, destroy the machine gun nests, um, needs more artillery. So at this point in the, in the battle, the British are going to have about 575 heavy and medium uh, right. artillery pieces and then 720 field guns and howitzers, uh, double the quantity that they had had available 
in the first battle on the 31st of July. They're going to increase the use of aircraft, systematic air observation of German troop movements to avoid failures of previous battles. Uh, previously, there had been too few air crews and they had been burdened with too many duties. They'd flown in bad weather and that made difficulties worse for them. All right. So they're going to make this happen. Remember, uh, there was three weeks, right? So the 25th of August, now it's the 20th of September when the Allies are going to attack on an eight 8.2 mile front. By mid-morning, they had captured most of their objectives to a depth of about 1,500 yards. The Germans made a hasty counterattack. All of them are going to fail to gain ground. They're going to uh, not even make any temporary penetrations of this new British position. So, like, this is good news for them. The German defense had failed to stop a well-prepared attack made in good weather. The British uh, the British made a—that was a good on them today— mm-hmm. uh, Five layers of barrage fire by the British artillery on the next day at 5.50 a.m. Dust and smoke thicken the morning mist and the infantry advances again using compass bearing. Um, Minor gains are going to be made. So they're going to use the cover to try and push forward. Again, 4 o'clock a.m. on the 30th of September, thick mist covers the ground. Artillery, German artillery bombardment begins. And here you see the Germans are going to emerge from the mist in their counterattack to try and gain back. So this is a slugging match. This is what mm-hmm. happened. One side's going to advance forward. They maybe advance again the next day. And then the guy in charge of the other side says, oh, no, I have to recapture what I had lost. This time, the Germans are going to use uh, flamethrowers. They're going to use smoke and hand grenades. They're going to be thrown as much as they possibly can. That was kind of the, the MO of the time. British are going to reply with heavy small arms fire bombs, and they force the Germans to retreat in confusion again. So um, here's one of the things. Uh, SOS rockets were not seen in the mist. So the British artillery was not utilized in that in that day's battle. So as soon as the Germans were pushing forward, they popped these SOS flares saying, hey, we've got an attack. And the artillery is supposed to respond by doing some right. counterattack uh, bombardment, but they were not able to do the that. The German artillery wasn't used. Uh, this is British. The British, well, the British artillery. artillery. The British saw the Germans coming, lit a flare, said, hey, start because they weren't using radio. So they shot a flare into the air to tell their their artillery behind them, hey, start shooting. And But they, the artillery couldn't see them. So this just goes to the fact of how difficult it is to advance through this mud-caked ground. Because if, if the Germans are advancing and all the British have to stop them are hand grenades, trench mortars that they've got in their trenches, and small arms fire and machine guns, that's a problem. They're not going to use any of their artillery on that day, and they're still going to stop the German advance. Again... On October 1st, Germans are going to utilize what's called a hurricane bombardment. It's quick, 15 minutes, everything we've got, kind of a kind of a bombardment. They're going to advance. The British SOS rockets are going to be successfully identified this time. Counterfire is effective. And guess what? The German advance stops again. So it's a back and forth. So the British are going to see some success here. And on the 4th of October, we're going to need to put a pin in this one, Brendan, for a later conversation at the Battle of Brunstein. Uh, They captured the ridges. It was a great success. One individual called the attack the greatest victory since the Marne. And uh, the Germans, the Weltkrieg, which is the German official history referred to the Black Day of October 4th. Uh, There had been an average advance of a thousand yards. The third Australian division is going to move forward up to about 1900 yards on that day. At this point in time, the Germans are going to have to reevaluate their lives because they're they're losing ground and they're incapable yeah. of of taking any back. This is usually like a, an accordion or like a like a pendulum swing back and forth. 
The British have had multiple days successes of grabbing and holding, grabbing and holding, grabbing yep. and holding, and the Germans are incapable of sustaining a counteroffensive that's going to grab any of that back. So yeah, so there's, a, there's a lot of credit to go to General Plumer here and then the heroic fighting of you know the Anzac Corps. I think it was one and two Anzac Corps had been fighting for Plumer over these last couple of weeks. Uh, you know, so we just talked about the Battle of Brunside, and you know, a couple of days ago was the Battle of Polygon Wood, and then a couple of days before that was the Battle of Menin Ridge Road. All very uh, famous battles for the Australians and the New Zealanders. So, and yeah, it was just like we're gonna do this creeping barrage, and like if you, like okay, so I, just like the preparation that Plumer put into this was just incredible. Uh, so like to prepare for all of this, the Royal Flying Corps produced fourteen thousand five hundred images of the battlefield. Right, so planes were flying over constantly and producing photographs to bring up to the staff and have them start like looking at like, what is the battlefield actually? They had built a huge terrain model um, that the British engineers constructed at Boost Boost. Uh, and then they would have all of the frontline battalions circle through terrain model and like, like, you know, do the rehearsals on this huge terrain model. And Sam, I'd love to hear from you. Like, you know, you're a maneuver officer. Like that is an important piece of preparation for you going into a fight, right? Like it's very important because you never know, you never know who's going to die. So everyone needs to know the plan, right? So you can't yeah. just be sitting there waiting for you, you know, your, your Sergeant or your Lieutenant or your captain to say, Hey, this is the way we got to go. Everyone needs to know the plan and everyone needs to rehearse the plan so that when, uh, you know, the, the fog of war comes on and bolts are flying, it's just muscle memory. You know, you got to go, uh, you know, from this checkpoint to that checkpoint. Yep. Um, so to have that and to have that accurate and uh, from, you know, photographs being flown overhead, I don't know if, I mean, again, before World War One, I, I don't know if that something like that has ever been done. I mean, maybe a couple aerial balloons at the Civil War. Maybe a couple aerial balloons, sure. Um, but, like, you know, what? Like, like, like we're talking about imagery intelligence here, right? Yeah. We're taking photos of the battlefield in real time, developing them, and then making a plan based off of that intelligence. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Not And not only making a plan, but be, like you said, being able to rehearse the plan is huge. Yeah. And so the other piece of this planning was like they I, I won't go into like all the crazy in-depth plans, but like they're basically talking about like with this creeping barrage, like the barrage will start at 540 a.m. And then it will fire for like three minutes and then we're going to move it 200 yards in front of us and then it's going to fire. And then they kept like they they walked the artillery by time. And then, you know, all the officers and all the soldiers can look at their watch and be like, yeah, this is where the artillery is supposed to be. And they can plan out their maneuver uh, in line with that artillery, that creeping right. barrage. And so that basically fall into the German trenches after they have just been pummeled. So the that. artillery barrage is almost like a force field. So it yeah. keeps the it keeps the, the Germans heads down. But, you know, we, the, the Germans are in depth. So let's just keep the artillery just in front of our own people. And the poor Anzacs, we talked we, we say the British. But really, it's the New Zealanders, it's the Australians, it's all the Dominion Canadians. soldiers in this fight that exactly. did all the good work. Exactly, they, they they did all the best work. And these poor ants. So, well, so creeping barrage when it works, it works great because it's this force field, and then yeah. as soon as you know it lifts, you're on you're on top of the trench. When it fails, it fails poorly. So, like if the barrage gets too far in front of you. Well, guess what? Now you're exposed. Now you're exposed to the German machine gun fire and you're just standing out there in no man's land with your pants down. That's that's the best case scenario on a failure. The worst case is the barrage falls behind um, and now you're just shelling your own soldiers. And that happened. That happened to, uh, I believe, it was the second Anzac, uh, some some Anzac. Those poor dudes just got pummeled by their own artillery and that, that mm -hmm. just sucks, but that's, that's part so of the game. I have a discussion point for you guys here. 
so we're kind of talking about like, yeah, the way that Plumer attacked this battle with his bite and hold was really impressive, and it led to British victory. But listen to this stat. So on 20 September, the British lost 21,000 casualties to capture five square miles, which equals 3,800 casualties per square mile. On 31 July, you know, with, with Goff's attack, they captured 18 square miles at one and a half casualties. So Goff was more aggressive. He attacked over a larger front, took more land, and he lost fewer soldiers per square mile. So, like, was was it worth it to capture this territory? For yeah, but Puma? all of Goff's territory that he gained, he then lost. He did. You know what I mean? So it's like, oh, that third, that 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 captured mileage is the what he is ended retained. at the end of the day. Yeah, so it wasn't up to okay. the third objective. You know, I always have such a problem when you're talking about trench warfare, capturing a thousand meters, capturing a hundred meters, capturing a mile. What is what does it matter? You know, yeah. like at this point in time. I'm looking at it as the best offense is a good defense. I think that uh, the Germans, uh, Falkenhayn, during the Battle of Verdun, I think he had the concept right when he said, we're going to bleed the French white. The concept of this should have been convince your enemy to attack and then slaughter them as they go through. Uh, Because at this point in time, territory doesn't matter. It's the manpower. It's the supplies. It's the logistics that matter. Are you able and capable of continuing on after three years of battle the only thing you're going to run out of is manpower. You're not going to run out right. of land. So going back to Broodsigned, right? The British only captured like at 1,200 yards to the front of their... And so it's like, is this British success, quote unquote, success? And maybe you could say like, yeah, Broodsigned was worth it because it is a ridge that like you could see the village of Passchendaele up on the next ridge from it. Uh, and it kind of put the Germans on their heels. But at the end of the day, like was this territory? I, I think it, it set the stage for what they were trying to do. Right. Um, like you said, it is the high ground. Uh, winter is coming. Um, and, you know, the it, where, with how wet it's been, you want to be as high and dry as possible. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I I think it was for what they were doing. It was worth it. I, yeah. I think if you're if you want to start talking about that game, you want to talk about was an offensive and passion. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. That is definitely a discussion point for the end of this episode. But the one thing it did was it made Ludendorff and the German high command like scratch their heads and be like, what do we do? So the Germans like, does this defensive depth actually work now with Plumer's idea of this bite and hold offense? And so they decided to go with a greater emphasis of machine guns on the front. And they created what was called uh, this advanced zone in front of their lines called the Vorfeld. Uh, and it would be established in front of the lines. So they put machine guns in front of the line in this Vorfeld zone and they would fire on British infantry until they were attacked. They would then fall back to the first trench line after, you know, the creeping barrage went. And then the German artillery would basically fire into the Borfeld and the Eingreif counterattack divisions would move into position, basically into that first trench line to counterattack into the Borfeld. Uh, so like, yeah, that's what, like Ludendorff's plan is like, this is how we're going to attack at the next one because the British can't keep. So Bjorn, what happens uh, after this battle? So I think the next one I have is 9 October at Pole Capel. Right, yeah. So then the British, the British are going to attack again on the 9th of October. Um, but guess what? Rain is going to cause significant issues. Not surprisingly. In the few days before 9 October, 25 millimeters. Yeah, so I don't know what that is in inches from in America, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's a significant amount of rain. And we're not going to see any gains. Then you get the first Battle of Passchendaele uh, on the 12th of October, another Allied attempt to gain ground around the city of Passchendaele. Heavy rain, mud, again, movement's difficult. Little artillery can be brought closer to the front because it's all mucked up. No matter what, here's the thing. 
if something's stuck in the mud and it's down to the axles, there's no amount of animals or horses or men power that can drag that thing forward. It's just not going to happen. So Allied troops are going to be exhausted. Morale's going to fall. After a modest British advance, the German counterattacks are going to recover most of the ground that they had lost opposite Passchendaele. So the Germans are at this point being, they're capable of holding the ground and keeping the British from gaining it. Uh, using their new strategy, whether that's the answer or whether the mud is the answer, um, that's that's for a different discussion. But finally, at a conference on the 13th of October, uh, Haig and the army commanders are going to agree that they cannot continue this attack until the weather improves, the, the, the roads can be extended, bring more artillery, more ammunition forward. That kind of seems like that's their, their go-to answer. If we just have more artillery, we just have more ammunition, we just have more men we can break through. I don't think that's really the answer, uh, but they had that as their mentality. That was generally the theme of World War One on the Western Front. So the offensive is going to continue, uh, but it's going to take. They're going to do a tactical pause, and at this point in time, the French are actually going to come to the British aid for the first time since the Nivelle Offensive. So the notes I have on this conference were that Haig was like, I want to see this offensive through. So the official British history states that Haig was like, we, we got to do this to put more pressure on the Germans uh, so that the French can fight at Verdun. That was happening simultaneously. There are some modern historians that don't see it that way or question it. If Haig actually just said that uh, to make it sound good, but in fact, he was like, this was his offensive. It was his baby, and he wanted his attack to be successful. So I think a lot of politics happening up at the field marshal. And a lot yeah, of pride. You go back to that quote from that staff officer at the beginning, like, I didn't even know the battlefield looked this bad. Yeah. Like, if that staff officer didn't know that, like, how much did Haig not know yeah. either? You know what I mean? Yep. So I've got some... Uh... So the mud's going to be a real problem if it hasn't already been a problem. But I've got some two quotes that I thought were really cool that kind of gives you an idea of, of how bad this is. So a Lewis gunner, his name was Jack Dillon, he's going to describe the mud this way. He says, now the mud at Passchendaele was very viscous indeed, very tenacious. It stuck to you. Your putties were solid mud anyway. But it's putty. Your putties are your, uh, so you had your shoe. The, the, you don't have boots at this point in time. You've got, you've got leather shoes and your putties uh, is the fabric that's wrapped all the way up your legs. So it's kind of like, oh, okay. uh, kind of looks like a bandage, like, like the. Kind of like your chaps that you have. That you yeah, yeah. Wear. Okay. Yeah. So your putties were solid mud anyways, but it stuck to you all over. It slowed you down. It got into the bottom of your trousers. You were covered with mud. The mud there wasn't liquid. It wasn't porridge. It was a curious kind of sucking kind of mud. When you got off this track with your load, it drew at you. Not like a quicksand, but a real monster that sucked at you. So uh, there were unknown numbers of men and animals that were drowned in the mud around Passchendaele. So this is actually more fearful in my mind than just about anything you can imagine. Like the Germans are shooting at you. That's one thing. But if you're wounded and you're laying in the mud, you will drown in it. You are slowly sinking in the mud. So stretcher bearer, uh, stretcher bearer William Collins is going to explain the ease with which you could drown in the mud. He says, it was a nightmare because all you had was a couple of duck boards side by side and either side of it was about 10 feet of mud with the top of a tank sticking out of it here and there. So the tank had gone all the way down into the mud. Uh, it says, if you fell off, it would take a traction engine to pull you out. It was that deep. It was absolute sucking mud. There were cases where one or two men would slip off the duckboards, 
and it took a couple of their comrades to pull them out gradually, inch by inch. When they managed to keep their arms out, and they pulled them out inch by inch out of the mud and got them to again on the boards. So, like, imagine there there was one quote I couldn't find it. But there was a story of a man who had been wounded and he was out in no man's land and he was so far off the duck boards that he was impossible for his comrades to reach. And he was just going mad with the concept that he was stuck in the mud and he was slowly drowning over a period of hours. He was watching himself sink into the mud in a situation where his comrades could do nothing but watch. Right. So- and even in that situation, there were a lot of stories of people's, you know, asking their friends to shoot them. Because that was that was a better end than drowning in the mud. And Bjorn, you said hours. There were some reports of of days. I, I read a I read a report of uh, the people that were walking down the duck boards. They were uh, walking to the front. They tried to pull the, this guy out and they couldn't. Um, and then they were walking back a few days later, and his head two days later, and it, he was still there, but it was just his head sticking out, and he had liter- he had gone insane, uh, probably from lack of water. Um, also lack, uh, you know, the thought of drowning in the mud. Um, so it's just very slowly, very slowly. And so that's what these duck boards are. These duck boards are just like a pallet, basically. It's just like a pallet. Yeah. It's, it's, it's how they could walk and not sink in the mud. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, they were built by the, you know, the Royal engineers, they just kind of lay them out, but the, the both sides knew where the other one's duck boards were because of that fancy thing. Aerial, aerial reconnaissance so the duck boards would get shelled and now guess what you're stuck yeah. so then the royal engineers had to go out back and, and rebuild them um so it's just a just a, a weird element to this fight that mm-hmm. you know is is very unique to passion day so leading into the next phase of fighting uh the canadian corps would now be called into play here and they were tasked with this third this last phase of the third battle of Ypres. canadian corps commander lieutenant general sir arthur curry was not happy to be tagged. He refused to work under Goff, and upon seeing the Passchendaele Ridge walking with Plumer, he said, taking the ridge will cost 16,000 casualties. The blasted place was not worth the drop. Uh, so, yeah, Sir Arthur Curry is like, we. this is not... So he fought back really hard against Hague. Like, we, are, we should not fight here at Passchendaele. Just stop at brute sign. We, we're in a high ground right now. We don't need to take Passchendaele. But, uh, you know, ever the, uh, ever the soldier, he takes his orders, and Hague's like, no, we are... We are attacking Passion Day, and the Canadian Corps is the one that will. So attacks again begin on the 22nd um, of October, but they're not going to make all the gains that they had hoped, obviously, due to the mud. Uh, But here's some good news. The French are going to show up on the 23rd. After numerous requests from Haig, Patan is going to begin the Battle of La La Malmaison, a long-delayed French attack on the Chemin de Dames, um, which is a a ridgeline there. In France, uh, there's an artillery. So pur- this is south of Ypres, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Just it's it's just south into France. Okay. And the artillery preparation starts on the uh, 17th of October. On the 23rd of October, the German defenders are going to be swiftly defeated. So uh, they didn't see this one coming at all. The French advance 3.7 miles, which is phenomenal when you're talking about an, an offensive in 1917. They're going to capture the village and the fort of La Malmaison. You're going to gain control of Chemin de Dam's Ridge. The Germans are going to lose 38,000 men killed or missing. They're going to have 12,000 German prisoners, uh, along with 200 artillery pieces, 720 machine guns, uh, and the French are only going to lose 1,400 French casualties. So that's fewer than a third of the German total. So this, like, this is huge. This is huge. 
uh, the, the British and the Germans have been locking horns for three months almost now. And at this point in time, the French kind of come in with a punch to the gut on and the Germans weren't expecting. it. So that kind of frees up some uh, some freedom of movement here for the Canadians, right? It should. It should. But yeah. it doesn't really. So it wasn't that. It, it should have been huge, but it wasn't. So because of the mud, the British are going to take minor operations again on the 20th, the 22nd of October, maintain pressure on the Germans to support this French attack, which is seeing great gains. Uh, the Canadian Corps is going to prepare for a series of attacks from the 26th of October to the 10th of November. Ooh, so one point here on the German defense. So uh, after those things, like, you know, they the the Vorfeld didn't work. And so the Germans are like, well, we got to do something different. So now instead of they're going to put the front line, divisions and they're going to immediately right behind it put the Eingrief. so the Eingrief for like so now we have this uh this frontline depth of eight thousand yards of basically two divisions right so front divisions four thousand yards second divisions eight thousand yards so like it is a very deep uh german defense just full of it and so the canadians they're gonna uh, have three oh, and at the same, sorry at the same time uh ludendorff kicks off the german austrian counter on the insanza river which disintegrates the italian second army so while Pashtale's happening, Ludendorff's planning this huge counteroffensive against the Italians. Was that like which, the 12th or the 13th battle? Yeah, it was like the 12th or the 13th. Zanzo. Yeah, it was uh, Corporetto, which was the decisive yeah. final. Yeah. The final. The final battle of the Asanza. Yeah. So that must have been the 13th. I can't. Yeah, I think so. There were a yeah. lot of them. Yeah. No, it was it was the decisive. 13th time's the charm. There you go. 13th time's the charm. Oh, yeah. Okay, Douglas so this, is, this is interesting. So the Canadian Corps falls in on uh fifth corps or fifth army guns uh and they begin prepping artillery for the battle and a problem like arose super quickly uh so they were supposed to fall in on 250 heavy guns and only 138 were found in an action of 306 18 pounders many were sunk in the mud and only half were operation so the canadians like come in like oh yeah we're gonna have all this artillery and only half the guns are available to them and, to the act, and they were half? actually good fire the other half had sunk in the mud. Basically, almost all of them had sunk in the mud. So the problem was, right, it was so muddy out. Every time they would fire a round, they could get like three rounds off. And then the uh, the stabilizing legs would sink super deep into the mud. And then they would have to like, you know, pull it out, get mules and stuff to pull these guns out. And it, it just got to the point where it was like they couldn't get them out. So half of them were just stuck in the mud. And, and they can't they be fired. continue attacking. They continue attacking. On the 26th, uh, on, the tw- on the 26th, the 30th of October, the 6th of November... They're doing these attacks again and again in the mud, again and again yep. in the mud. Um, they're going to see some minor gains because, remember, the Germans are dealing with the mud as well. So bringing a counterattack yep. forward is just as muddy as bringing the yep. original attack. Uh, so the 4th Canadian Division on the 26th is going to capture its objectives. But guess what? They're going to be forced to slowly retire again uh, as the Germans counterattack. They have a failure to communicate between the Canadians and the Australians, so they can't interlock their lines very well. Um, so they lose everything that they had gained. Then you go to the 30th of October uh, to complete the previous stage, gain a base for the final assault on Passchendaele. They move forward, and guess what? They capture a couple different farms, but they get stopped. This is the problem. Mm. Mud, mud, mud. And then lastly here, um, they're going to... Uh, oh, yeah, so another artillery note here. for So we're going to jump into 6 November, right, Bjorn? Yep. Yeah, so the Canadians finally get their artillery organized. And so they have an 18-pounder gun assigned for every eight meters of line. 
and they have a larger howitzer assigned to every 32 meters. Shells were set to set to detonate above the ground to prevent duds in the soft mud. So what was happening was like they were firing all these rounds, and a large percentage of them would just hit the mud and sink and never explode, right? Because like they need that hard impact on the nose to like hit the high explosive. And so a lot of these, there is a ton of duds out there. So they uh, they set the thing where it would explode over the ground and do like this airburst thing. Um, and then the integration of the creeping barrage with the ground assault went much smoother on this day. So the, the, the Canadians really figure it out here on 6 November. So what happens? Right. Well, and talking about the artillery, I mean, you have a monstrous shell that smashes into the mud. It's going to have a much less effect as it's trying to explode its way through the mud than it mm-hmm. would had it not penetrated so deeply into the mud in the first place. So that's another detriment to it, too. So having an airburst is much more significant. And in- the other problem by this time is, you know, we, we're talking about like how, how muddy it is. And it's the same thing on the supply side, right? Like the amount, like we talked about a huge volume of shells, right? And it's not guys that are carrying that. They got wagons of mules. But the problem is there's shell holes everywhere. And like these shell holes are like, I'm like six foot. And like these shell holes are taller than me and they're full of water. And there's a couple stories of these mules like stepping wrong and falling into these shell holes. And like there was one story of like a whole team of mules going to the shell hole and they just got to take a revolver to them uh, because they can't get them out. And so like they lost a lot of rounds that way and they just couldn't supply the rounds like they had earlier. But it was on both sides of the So if you want to take a really nice vacation down to Kansas City, the uh, National World War One Museum. Wait, a nice vacation to Kansas City. Kansas City is very nice. The National World War One Museum is there, and uh, they actually have a life-size crater, and they put you in the bottom of it. So you actually like walk in a door, and they put you in the bottom of the crater, and they have. Well, you you just see the giant hole outside the museum, Sam. It's it's next to the broken Renault FT tank. Hmm. We'll, we'll have to take a trip down there, Sam. But anyway, yeah. it, I don't want to go. It's, it's massive. It's okay, Joe's barbecue. Yes, it's a massive place. So um, we're going to see three rainless days between the third and the fifth of November. Ooh, that sounds like an attack waiting to happen. Oh yeah, it's going to ease preparation for the next stage, uh, which is going to begin on the morning of the sixth of November. The first Canadian division, the second Canadian division. In less than three hours, they're going to reach their objectives and they're going to capture Passion. The Canadian Corps attacked on the 10th of November to gain control of remaining high ground north of the village near uh, Hill 52. This is going to cause a salient, right? And it's known as the Passchendaele salient. It's going to become subject to constant German artillery bombardments. It's vulnerable to attack. Um, But the Germans never counterattack with infantry, right? They, They fire artillery, but the Germans are like, this is not valuable enough for us to retake. So we are not going to spend the casualties there because we are like, well, and by this point, it's basically over. The Canadians have captured the city of the city of Passchendaele. They've got the Ridge. They've taken what the Germans had. Um, but everyone's basically spent and the mud is just ridiculous. And so the Germans are pounding the salient and I cannot believe the suggestion that's made by Brigadier CF Aspinall. He says that the British should either retire out of the artillery range or they need to advance again. So (laughs) like, this is ridiculous. We just spent tens of thousands of lives trying to Mm -hmm. capture this line. We finally capture the city of Passchendaele and now you want us to fall back. Well, and like where, like, so where he wants, like, so in your notes, you have uh, wants to fall back to the Uvelt plateau. And that was like the first objective. Like, so he wants to fall back all the way to (laughs) Hebrew. Can you believe that? That's insane. Imagine being a soldier that watched a lot of your buddies die and you just took the city of Passchendaele and now you're falling back. A lot of buddies dying. 
So casualties for this battle, the British Expeditionary Forces, 244,897 killed, wounded, and missing. The German Fourth Army, 236,231 casualties. Both sides, almost a quarter of a million. Over a quarter of a million. It's almost it's almost unfathomable. It's The numbers in this battle, like 4.2 million shells in the first two weeks, quarter of a million casualties on both sides. And again, and this like, is from one small town in Belgium to another very small town in yeah, Belgium. To a, like right. a village, which looks really nice on Google Street, by the yeah, way. Yeah, I just pulled it up. I'm surprised. The the road structure is kind of... They have the that before and after picture of the Battle of yeah. Passchendaele where there's like some buildings and then it's just a moonscape, but you can still kind of see the roads. The roads are actually still... The modern roads are follow those lines actually pretty well. Well, and if you've ever been there, the if you ever go there, the city of Ypres uh, has very narrow medieval... Uh, roads and I remember turning down a one way the wrong way and a very nice Belgian person said in English hey American you can't do that no no <laughs> it was but like same right like that before and after the after picture is flat ground no buildings no roads no buildings it is just a flat it's a, it's a famous photo you can you can Google yeah. it it's you can it's... go to one of my favorite sources Wikipedia <laughs> yeah check out the one where they look at the the cathedral there at Ypres it's it's devastated. So here's an interesting well, that's thing. That's the battle. So the the British did take Passchendaele. No well, breakthrough, unfortunately. The Canadians took Passchendaele. Well, yeah. The, the British the forces. The dominions. Yeah. The, the, the Commonwealth forces. Yeah. But Haig, Sir Douglas Haig, the field marshal, finally took the ridge of Passchendaele. Hooray. Hooray for him. Hooray. But here's the thing, though, Brendan. I was looking at it, and in a German general staff publication, it was written that Germany had been brought near to certain destruction by the Flanders Battle of mm-hmm. 1917. So... The Germans themselves are looking at this saying, this is not good. This yeah. is not good. And especially when they're looking at it, they did a lot of reevaluating of their defensive strategy and they were not successful. On the British part, though, they did also fail to capture the German submarine bases in Belgium there at Antwerp. Um, but they were very successful in diverting German attention away from the French forces who had been spending the summer trying to recover from that devastation of the Nivelle Offensive. So I'm going to put this in the British category of a, a minor victory. Right. Okay. Sure. Haig did fail his breakthrough. He failed to take the submarine bases at end. And we have to talk, if we're going to talk about passion, we also have to talk about what happened the next spring in 1918. The <laughs> Germans, you know, the Russians empire had fallen apart. The Germans could focus all their attention on the one, you know, the Americans are like starting to come over. So the plan is we're going to do a major counter offensive here in the spring of 18. And the British army is not ready. Uh, to bolster the defense, it was decided that the BEF would withdraw back to almost their exact positions in July of 1917. So the Germans' offensive is coming, and the British are like, all right, we don't want to deal with this. So they fall back to Ypres almost, like all the way back to Ypres, and the Germans retake all that hard-fought ground the British took four months to take in less than a week, and they did not fire a shot. Well, but that's a good that's a good move. Strategically, that's a good move. So when you have a salient, you are bulging into your opponent's uh, territory, and that... You sound causes... like a real BEF stand right now, Bjorn. No, yeah, you sound like a real Douglas Haig. Hey, yeah. it takes significant manpower in order to man trenches that are bulging into your enemy's land and territory. No, I, I, get, I think what Brendan's getting at is, was the Battle of Passchendaele right. even the worth it? The British lost over a quarter of a million people to take... 10 kilometers of land in the next spring, they lose it without a single shot. So why would they like, they could have just stayed in Ypres and nothing would have changed. And they would have kept all those. But to Bjorn's was, point, the war of attrition, you know, is it really about the land or is it more about, you know, I, I know that I can go 
uh, man for man with you and I'll come out on top. But then you also have to take into account the political aspect of this. If you are not attacking, if you're not trying to capture ground, if you're not successfully mm. unleashing an offensive, what happens in your home front? What happens back there? Um, you've got to keep up All the pressure. All those moms going to keep their sons, maybe? Well, you got to keep up the pressure. Wait for the Americans to come and uh, bolster the lines? Well, that that's an obvious one. The Americans coming would have been an obvious one. But if you're not pushing forward, if you're not attempting to win this war, what are you doing? Especially on the British side where the British are are trying to get the Germans out of Belgian territory, trying to get the British or the French are trying to get them out of German territory. But like you look at the strategic picture here, like Verdun's happening, like or, you know, Italian, the Italian offensive at Caporetto. Like, could the British have supported the Italians more there and not lost Italy? Because Italy basically falls after that happens. So strategically, when you're looking at the macro, did the Ypres salient matter? They didn't take the U-boats. They didn't stop the U. So what was the point? Well, I mean, I think that the fact that they assisted the French who were recovering from the Nivelle Offensive, maybe that would have done something. The French actually turned, funny story, they actually are the ones who do more damage to the Germans in one single day than the British are able to kind of do. Another point through. on the French, though, Philippe Patton, not for the Ypres Offensive. He didn't think that the British should have attacked. Well, you also you also you also got to think way back like how long had they been planting tnt under messian ridge you know what i mean like they've been planning for this for so long like to not do it a lot of people would have been you know they they succumbed to the sunk cost fallacy, right yeah. classic what a good case study for i know microeconomics <laughs> <laughs> i think okay, the so biggest issue here. though i think the biggest issue is the mud it should have been paused as soon as this was a became an issue so the muddiest yeah. year in 30 yeah. years. This is unsustainable. Yeah. We can't do this. Right. It's time to stop. Okay. So let's say, okay, so the battle starts and we are going to do the Battle of Passchendaele. The British make it to Broodside, right? The second army under General Bloomer, bite and hold, really good stuff. They get to the top of Broodside. They got a nice overwatch over Passchendaele. Pretty good defensive area. Should the British have stopped there and not gone onto the Passchendaele? I have a couple of notes here, but I'd be interested... I've like for both sides, but like, what do you guys think? So a train that's moving is hard to stop. And so the question that I would have is how many, how many shells do they have built up? How many planes do they have? How many men do they have in that location? Because calling a halt and then diverting all those assets to another location is difficult to do. Now with the mud, they probably should never, should never have even gotten to the battle of Brunsch. But yeah. if we're here and we don't have the manpower to continue on, then it's a good time for a tactical yeah. pause. So I have a couple of notes. Like, Yes, they should have attacked the Passchendaele Ridge because it was important. And Sam, you'd mentioned this, right? It was important to capture that high and dry ground on the Passchendaele Ridge to winter the army and prep for a spring offensive. That was like in people's minds. But it's like Brutsind was also on a ridge with high ground. So they could have stayed there and stayed dry for the... Um, but yes, they should have attacked to exploit the success of the Men in Ridge battle, the Polygon Wood battle, and the Brutsind battle. Right, like you want to continue to exploit your successes. So I think those are the factors on the yes side. I have a couple factors on the no side. So they had already expended huge amounts of men and resources just to capture the few thousand yards between Ypres and Broodside. They already commanded the high ground at Gravenstein. Uh, it's a spur that came off the Passchendaele Ridge that overlooked Passchendaele. The train between Broodside and Passchendaele was the worst of the battle. There was a little uh, river or like big creek that ran through there, uh, the Rave Beak, I think. And yeah, so there was a river there. The, the The ground here was extremely muddy, like more muddy than anywhere else in the battlefield. So everyone knew it was going to be extremely hard to to fight through. And then Passchendaele was almost indefensible from the east. 
Uh, there's no cover. And then it's easily targeted from wide range positions and difficult to spy. Bjorn, like you talked about, right? Like the, with the Germans attacking Passchendaele with artillery after the British had captured it. So I want to say here, by taking Passchendaele, it created a, a little mini salient in the line. Right, so that, yeah. Even... Bjorn, what'd you call it? The, the Passchendaele salient? Yep. The Passchendaele salient. Yeah. So maybe the British didn't know it was on the east side of the ridge. But I think like with all those factors, to me, it's a it's going to be a no. You're not going on to the next round of America, right? <laughs> It, like, yeah, it's, and I'm not it sure costs much, it costs too much, not, and they they would end up losing in the spring anyway. I'm not sure what it was about Passchendaele that got it in Douglas Hag's mind that I need I need Passchendaele. Um, there, I don't know. Maybe it's easier know. to say than brute signed. You can't <laughs> even say it. That that has to be it. That has to be the answer. I've avoided saying it this whole time successfully. So, <laughs> so here's, you've always said it. You've avoided saying what, Sam? The name no. of that town. Oh, nice. yeah. <laughs> so, so here, I'm going to give you a final thought here on what yeah. uh, kind of looking at the significance of this battle. I would make an argument that says that this battle was not significant to world history. There was mm-hmm. no major changes mm-hmm. that occurred as a result of it. There was no political upheaval. There was no tactical changes. The battlefield literally stayed the same after a year. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm going to say that it is a significance to military history. And that is because it is a perfect study of, of some major errors that were not taken into account that could have resulted in greater benefits elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. like just looking at how weather can affect a battlefield and it should be a no brainer, but guess what? It wasn't to the tune of a half a million men. It wasn't. Right. And yeah. so weather taken into account. The yeah. Maybe don't attack Ukraine in the spring. Yeah. There you go. The difficulty yeah. of advancing on with defensive weaponry looking at you the way it is um the the the, the abilities of a defense in depth strategy the the bite and hold strategy mm-hmm. these are all things that we are seeing today we are seeing today a hundred years later we're seeing it today i think the other thing here too is just like human psychology or just like leadership right like Hague was so focused on the breakthrough and capturing passchendaele and he didn't keep an open mind to new data and analysis like he actively did not listen to his staff uh, about what the germans were looking like what the weather was looking like what the train was looking like what his supplies were at uh he was just like there's something to be said like yeah it's good to be dead focused on a goal but you need to like you know use data to inform right their future movements and it just seemed like douglas Haig didn't really do that and goff didn't really do that either and the only time he really listened to any of his subordinate generals, which was Plummer, was when he had just fired Goff. And, you right. know, Plummer had some demands, you know, and yeah. Haig was like, all right, you know, but, you know, under the condition that we're going to proceed to passion. So set a goal, but be open to data, right? Like, right. look at like, and it think, wasn't successful. And think but, like, critically, like, is it worth right? it? Like, Ludendorff and the German command was constantly trying to like figure out like, how do we modify our defensive, like, Ludendorff could have just been like, we're going to use defensive the defense and depth strategy that we set at the beginning of this and fight that way the entire time. But like he had new data. Plumer yeah. attacked differently. So you have to change how you're doing things. Otherwise, you're going to get rolled up like they well, did. In the, and not only that, but if if they I feel like if they if Ludendorff had uh, seen strategic value in Passchendaele itself, I think he he would have he would have continued on. You know, he would have. But he was like. I got a, I got the 13th battle of the Asanzo that the Austrians can't close out. Mm-hmm. I got, you know, a spring offensive that is going to be, you know, on the scale of the whole Western front, not just this one little salient. Um, I got bigger fish to fry right now. Like, right. let's let's lick our wounds and, and figure out what we're doing here. Sam, thank you so much for joining us, friend. We had a lot of fun talking about the Battle of Passchendaele. 
Um, so one thing we like to do, me and Bjorn, at the end of each series, we kind of switch off who's going to pick the next series. And since you are an esteemed guest, we'd like to uh, throw the question to you, Sam. What oh, well, is the next series we cover on Monday morning? First, first of all, I'm honored. Thank you very much for leaving this task to me. Uh, this is a fairly modern battle that we just uh, that we just discussed. I'm I'm thinking we go ancient with our next one. I'm thinking we go Roman. Okay. I'm thinking the Battle of Cannae. I think oh. that's a great choice. Rome versus Carthage. Also yeah, a little Hannibal, controversial. Oh, it's a controversial in the significance to history. But that I'll well, save Mayor, that let's later. save that conversation for two weeks from now. <laughs> Already uh, controversy. I have one final note here. I would like to put a big uh, thank you out to my friend Tom Bowers uh, for suggesting we do the Battle of Passchendaele. So feel free to reach out to us and uh, give us suggestions. Uh, everyone, we're going to close it out here. It's been long enough. Y'all have a good night. MMG 